Well, good morning, everybody. I think I'm on here, am I? No. <clears throat> this says I'm on. There we go. Woo! All right. We are looking at the book of Hosea. And we're in chapter 3 today. So uh, let me just recap a couple things that we've been seeing so far. Hosea is the story of wrath and judgment on the one hand and grace and forgiveness on the other. Uh, and those two butt up against each other in such a powerful way in this book. Uh, it's almost as if you've got two different people writing because it, it can just shift on a, a moment's notice and it has a whole different feel to it. So in, in the midst of pronouncing uh, terrible things ahead for Israel because they've uh, been worshiping idols, uh, suddenly you're in the midst of this beautiful section of God's love and his uh, eternal care for these people. It's really very striking. Uh, at the same time, what we've seen is that those two ideas, wrath and judgment or grace and forgiveness, are not equal. Uh, in the end, uh, grace and God's forgiving love is triumphant. So, so it's not uh, you know, an eternal tension. It's a, a story that is going someplace and it's going toward a resolution that is beautiful and wonderful. And uh, we'll see some of that in the text we're looking at today, which is chapter 3. I think it's the shortest chapter in this book. And it is the, the completion of the Hosea and Gomer story. Uh, once you come to the end of 3, you don't hear anything about Hosea's personal life anymore. You don't hear anything about Gomer and, and how that worked out between them. Now, from chapter 4 on, it's totally the relationship between the Lord and Israel. So, uh, let's read this section. The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. All right, so some time has gone by. 
We don't know how long. Uh, Gomer has left the marriage, uh, pursuing other loves. Very few details given, and somehow she has fallen into a state of bondage. Hosea is to go and love her once again, to reestablish his connection with her, uh, but to do so, uh, it's going to involve deliverance because she's in captivity of some sort. Perhaps uh, going out on her own, a single uh, woman in the ancient world is uh, financially in very desperate situations normally, and uh, it may have been that she had to sell herself into indebtedness just to deal with uh, the financial situation. We don't know, but in any case, she's in bondage, not literally, but, but metaphorically. She's not free to come back to Hosea at that point. Now, what I think this points us to and what we need to reflect on a little bit is that the allure of uh, other lovers is a recipe for bondage and enslavement. Now, remember, the marriage of Hosea and Gomer is an analogy. It's a metaphor that God is using to speak to the Israelites about their relationship with the Lord. The uh, literal, physical adultery of Gomer, where some other love has intervened between herself and Hosea, that's a metaphor for the way Israel and indeed the way all the world behaves in relationship to the one living true God. We are allured, we're attracted by other loves, even though God says, I'm the Lord your God, Uh, you shall have no other gods before me, even though he claims that exclusive relationship Uh, The allure of other gods, other idols, is very powerful. Uh, Remember our definition of a god. A god is what you trust in. A god is what you look to to fulfill your hopes for good and for blessing. And it, uh, it can be a literal idol, but it can, be, uh, it can be ideas, it can be possessions, it can be people, all sorts of things can function in this notion of spiritual uh, adultery. The allure of other lovers then inevitably leads to some kind of bondage in our lives. Just as uh, Gomer ends up in a situation of bondage, so when Israel pursues other gods, when she worships the the Baals, when we worship careers or things or whatever it is that allures us away from our exclusive love toward God himself, 
we enter into bondage. And the bondage is a result partly of the fact that, that these false gods promise us what they can never deliver. They promise us uh, freedom, perhaps, fulfillment, joy. All of them, I think, are pointing in one basic direction. It's toward that, uh, that idea that the Old Testament talks about with that beautiful word, shalom. Uh, often translated peace, but I, I like to render it something like uh, comprehensive well-being. Right? It's, it's health, it is peace, it's... Uh, uh, the absence of, of conflict, its safety. But I like this idea of comprehensive well-being. And the false gods that steal our affection are virtually always promising some element of shalom. They, they are counterfeit gods and they promise us a counterfeit shalom. They virtually never deliver or if they do deliver, what they deliver is a counterfeit because it's not quite right. Whether it's drugs or sex or whatever it may be, the promise proves false in the end. And the result of that is when we commit ourselves to what is false, we end up in some kind of bondage, a servitude. You know, there's, uh, there's two basic themes in the Bible when it comes to the idea of worship. The Old Testament has two basic words, and the New Testament has two basic words. One word means to bow down. It's, it's a physical posture, and what it represents is an attitude of humility and submission to God. So worship is submission, right? It's it's bowing down. It's humility, honoring God. The other word that shows up, both Old and New Testament, is a word which means to serve. And so our worship to God is not just a mental thing. It's not just something we speak or we sing, but it's a style of life in which we give ourselves in obedience to the God who really exists. When we worship false gods, we end up in bondage because we serve, we worship, we give our lives to the service of that which is false, and that's ultimately uh, a bondage. Jesus understood that so well when he says, whoever sins is the slave of sin, right? There's, and, and we can look at that, I mean, we live in the, uh, the culture of addiction, in the last uh, 50, 60 years, we've become much more aware of the power <clears throat> that these false gods have in a culture which has all kinds of prominent, powerful addictions. And, and in addiction, we recognize this notion of bondage or servitude or slavery in a very powerful way. This is what happens when we get attracted to other loves. And this is the case with 
Gomer, uh, however it happens, she is in bondage and is in need of deliverance. And so it's the task of Hosea to bring about deliverance for Gomer. And he does it by paying a price. It's not a great amount of money, but he, he probably didn't have much money. In fact, uh, the fact that he gives a certain amount of silver, uh, 15 shekels of silver, that's half the price that the Old Testament says a slave would sell for. So he's got half of that money, and then he combines it with some gifts in kind. There's some barley, uh, a homer of barley, and then the NIV says a lethic of barley. It's really just this word lethic, but we don't know what it means. It's only used once in the Old Testament. So it may be a measure of barley. <clears throat> it's also been suggested that it's a, uh, it's a measure of wine, so that he may have given some silver, and some barley and some wine as part of this price. In any case, it wasn't a lot. But for him, probably costly. I'm going to suggest that it was that his love for Gomer that the Lord commands him to show is a costly love. It's costly maybe financially for him. I suspect it was. But it's costly in other ways, you quickly realize. Jerry Bridges has some good thoughts on this idea of costly love. He says, love is costly. To forgive in love costs us our sense of justice. That would certainly apply to Hosea, would it not? He gives up his notion of what's just and right in order to love a faithless wife. To serve in love costs us time and effort, of course. To share in love costs us money. Every act of love costs us in some way. Deliverance for Gomer is costly. And, of course, we're to remind ourselves that this is a picture of the Lord's love for Israel. And so we'd want to note that Yahweh's love for Israel is costly as well. Although in this text, the cost is not really explained. It's not elaborated. We can, we can certainly think that it costs God a lot of patience to put up with these people for centuries when they constantly turned away to idols. But the deeper cost that will be involved for Yahweh is not really mentioned here. We do have some indication in verse 5 where it says, Afterward the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. We have some indication that the future deliverance for Israel is going to involve the Messiah, right? They'll return to David, their king. David's been dead for centuries at this point, so this is a reference to David's great descendant, the coming Messiah. So it's involved there. Israel's going to return, but only in the days of uh, David, their king. It's going to be another eight centuries 
before the cost involved for Yahweh to love his people gets revealed in a very powerful fashion. It's revealed when David, their king, shows up and rather than turning to him, this verse says the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. But that's not what they do initially. What they do is crucify their king. And so Yahweh's love is costlier than anybody, Hosea or anyone else in the Old Testament, I think, could begin to imagine. The Apostle Paul himself, before he had his great experience on the road to Damascus, could not imagine himself that the Messiah would give his life in love for this people. But subsequently, he comes to understand that. So in 1 Corinthians, he says to a church, not just a Jewish church, mind you, but a church that is largely Gentile. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Deliverance is costly. It's costly for God. God surrenders his life for the life of the idolatrous wife. The Apostle Peter says a similar thing. He says, you were redeemed, you were delivered, not by corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Messiah. Deliverance is costly. And then the third thing we ought to reflect on a bit is uh, the idea of repentance. Now, repentance is not specifically mentioned Uh, The word is not in this text, but the idea is clearly here. It's clearly here in verse 5 when it says, Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord. I grew up in churches where we didn't talk about repentance very much, except in a negative fashion. We, We actually felt that repentance was not something that believers should be involved in. It was regarded as a kind of a... I guess an ancient idea, uh, maybe an Old Testament idea, but I think the real problem we had with repentance was a a confusion in our minds. The churches I grew up in were, among other things, they were uh, pretty anti-Catholic, right? And, And repentance in our mind was confused with the idea of penance. Now, that's a very old confusion. goes back into the Middle Ages and maybe even earlier. So let's clarify them for, for ourselves and, and point out repentance is not penance. Penance is one of the seven sacramental events of Roman Catholic theology. Penance is the idea that we need a way to deal with the sins that we commit after we're baptized. Baptism takes care of the sins before, uh, before that. <clears throat> Subsequently, uh, penance is what we need. Penance involves 
being sorry for your sins. It involves then confession to a priest. The priest then can pronounce forgiveness or absolution. And then the final step is that of satisfaction. Satisfaction is the idea that if you're really serious about turning back to God, if you're really serious about forgiveness, then you will want to show that in your life. And you show it in your life when the priest assigns you certain actions that can demonstrate your contrite heart. Now that's where the problem comes in, I think, for many Roman Catholics and for non-Catholics like me. Often that last step of satisfaction is understood as a kind of paying for your sins. Now that's not theoretically correct, but in a popular mind it, it becomes that quite easily. <clears throat> and, and so in the circles I grew up in, we emphasize faith. And we said, you don't have to do anything. You, don't, you can't pay for your sins. All you can do is trust God and accept his forgiveness, which is true, right? Uh, but, but in saying that, in saying there's no place for paying for your sins, because of that confusion between repentance and penance, we basically ignored repentance as something that was significant. Even though in the New Testament... Repentance and faith are put right together. All right, well, enough of the history. Uh, Let's assume then that we can agree that repentance is something separate, that it is important scripturally. What's involved in repentance? Well, there's, there's two elements. One is turning away from sinful actions, turning away from a direction of life, that leads us to other gods, that causes us to deny him. Repentance is turning away from that course of life. A turning from, but then with that, it's simultaneously a turning to. It's a turning back to God. Now, in that sense, notice verse 5 again. Afterward, the Israelites will return... And what? They will seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Israel will return. They will turn back from their idolatrous ways and they will turn to the Lord. They will seek him in the latter days. Once again, the Apostle Paul is so helpful here in talking about the same thing in regard not just to the Jewish people, but to believers in general. When he uh, writes to the believers in Thessalonica, he says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. That's repentance, even though he doesn't use the words. Turn to God from idols to wait for his son from heaven. You know about geotropism, right? Uh, Plants have this innate 
ability to sense the direction of the sun and turn toward it. The trees on the edge of my woods out back all lean out over the lawn. Not because they want to hang over the lawn, but because they get more sun when they extend their branches away from the other trees. So all along the perimeter, the ones further back, they stand straight up because that's where they get the sun. But on the edge, they lean because they have that feel for where the sun is. Well, repentance is kind of like that, you know? Repentance is you come to that point in your life where you realize other things are failing. You thought they were the sun that were going to give you life, and you come to a point of realizing there's no life there. In fact, you're experiencing bondage of one sort or another. And repentance then is that turning away from the false light, turning to God who is the source of light and of life. That's repentance. That's what uh, Gomer needs to do. We don't know if she ever did it. Right? We know that we know that Hosea acted to free her so she could, but we don't know if she ever did it. Certainly in Hosea's day, the Israelites did not return to the Lord. And there's no expectation really that they will at that point because verse 4 says, the Israelites will live many days without king or prince. But there is a day coming, the promise is there, that after that time, however long it is, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God. As I've said before, I don't think that, that that promise has yet been fulfilled. Although there are certainly some, right from the beginning, who, like the Apostle Paul, turned to the Lord. All the original apostles were, were Israelites. But I think the fulfillment of this promise still lies to the future. But it's going to happen one day. Uh, they will turn to the Lord and to David, their king. But a passage like this, especially when we see how the New Testament writers pick up these themes of turning back and so forth, these sections become, every time I read them, uh, an invitation to me. And I hope to you as well. The invitation is for me to reassess what are the loves in my life? What do I esteem? What do I give my energy to? What do I serve? Who do I serve? And the invitation is to constantly be in this process of turning from and turning to. The invitation. The old hymn we used to sing uh, says it so beautifully, O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer fuller be. I give thee back the life I owe, 
recognizing that I have been redeemed, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And the love of God lays a claim on my life and on your life, and the response of us is to rest our weary soul in the understanding that apart from the rest that God gives, there is no real rest for us. Rest is another way of talking about shalom, isn't it? That which we desire and which we are invited to accept and receive. Well, today is uh, Communion Sunday. And uh, Duane is going to come up in a minute or so and lead us in that. <clears throat> but notice that, that in communion there is also this invitation, isn't there? There's this invitation to receive, ultimately from the hands of Jesus himself, his life, the body, and the blood of Christ. To partake of him, and so as we think about this passage, as, as we take communion together, <clears throat> ask yourself, How am I responding to God's invitation to find life in him? Where's my heart? Is it distracted? Is it attracted? Is it allured by many other loves? Or is my heart turning back to the Lord regularly on a daily basis just like that sunflower rotates to face the sun. Duane?